Hi, everyone. My name is Wilson Shirley, and welcome to the American Enterprise Institute's The Bradley Lectures on the AEI podcast channel. The Bradley Lectures, given for over a quarter century at AEI beginning in September 1989, were sponsored by the Lind and Harry Bradley Foundation. AEI Senior Fellow Carlin Bowman and I hope to bring new life to this series by releasing them as podcasts for your enjoyment. In this episode, we're revisiting What's Wrong with the Media and How to Put it Right by the British journalist and historian Paul Johnson, originally delivered at our headquarters in October 1994. In 1979, Paul Johnson was named AEI's first ever DeWitt Wallace Fellow. This lecture predated alternative facts and fake news, and most importantly, it was given before the internet became part of the media landscape. Yet Mr. Johnson's contrast between the ideal and the reality of American media stands the test of time. Drawing on the Book of John, Thomas Jefferson, Milton, and Daniel Webster, Johnson asks his audience to demand a moral media aware of its moral obligations to society. With that goal in mind, he offers his own guide in the form of a new list of seven deadly sins and ten commandments for a media that, even in 1994, often fell short of its essential role in the success of a Republican government. It's a missionary role to seek the truth and to educate the public through information, regardless of what the public might think it wants to know. And with that, here's Paul Johnson on What's Wrong with the Media and How to Put it Right. I've entitled this talk, What's Wrong with the Media and How to Put it Right, but I've also added a subtitle, Can the Media Make a Moral Contribution to Our Culture? Because we expect large groups in society to make a moral contribution. We expect the churches, for instance, quite rightly. We expect, in our own way, uh, the government to make a moral contribution to our society in the sense that we expect it uh, to try and improve the ethics on which our society is run. But we don't always uh, see the media in these terms, and I think that is wrong. And therefore, when I'm asked the question, can the media make a moral contribution to our culture and our society, I say not only can it do so, but it must do so, and we must ensure that it does so. It is potentially a great secular church, a system of evangelism for dispersing the darkness of ignorance, expelling error, and establishing truth. I don't know whether any of you have recently read St. John's Gospel, but it could be described as a celebration of the importance of truth. The word is used again and again in all its meanings. Uh, the importance of truth and the need to convey it. It is, in a way, the gospel of the media. And the Jesus of Nazareth presenting it might almost be called the first journalist bringing the good news to mankind. He spoke in the temple when he was allowed and in wayside places if need be, anywhere where he could collect a crowd. And he aimed his words at the masses, not just the elites, indeed principally the masses. Can anyone doubt that the man who once preached to the 5,000 would today use all the resources of the mass circulation newspaper and above all TV, if he could? 
I am the way, the truth, and the light, the life. Those are the words of the dedicated reporter, he who brings the news which sets the people free. Now, I say that because it's to remind you that earlier ages had no doubt that the media had moral purposes and moral duties. John Milton, in his great prose polemic, Areopagitica, defending the right to print and publish, which he addressed to the Parliament of England in, in 1644. In that book, it brings from start to finish with the poet's exalted conception of the writer's role in elevating and purifying society. The freedom to publish, Milton asserted, is the foundation of all civil liberties. As he puts it, Give me the liberty to know, to utter, and to argue freely according to conscience above all liberties. Freedom of the press produced and ought to produce a variety of views, he continued. Where there is much desire to learn, there of necessity will be much arguing, much writing, many opinions. For opinion in good men is but knowledge in the making. But, added Milton, where there was freedom to publish, we could be confident of the outcome. Though all the winds of doctrine were let loose to play upon the earth, so truth be in the field, we do injuriously by licensing and prohibiting to misdoubt her strength. Let her and falsehood grapple. Whoever knew truth put to the worse in a free and open encounter. Those are the words of John Milton. Now, Areopagitica might be called the foundation document of the right of the media to be free and its duty to arrive at the truth. But the media's function was enormously increased and still more exalted by the creation of the United States of America. It is impossible to conceive of the American Revolution or the process whereby the Declaration of Independence was written the United States Constitution agreed and ratified and amended by the Bill of Rights without the interplay of Congress, newspapers, and public opinion. Almost from the start, those who created America as a free society believed strongly in the natural good sense of humanity. The people would be virtuous and take the right courses so long as they were fully informed of the truth. And the truth reached them essentially through the newspapers. One of the most striking characteristics of the early United States was the rapidity with which newspapers were set up as the frontier expanded. Cincinnati, for instance, got its first newspaper in 1793 when it had fewer than 500 citizens. In 1808, St. Louis got the first paper west of the Mississippi when less than 1,500 people lived there. And Leavenworth in Kansas got its own paper in 1854 when the town consisted of four tents. Noah Webster, who created the first American dictionary and might be described as the ideologist of freedom of printing in America, as Milton was in England, argued in the first issue of the newspaper he founded that the press was essential to the success of Republican government because it was the only way, the only sure way, to correct its abuses. 
the best informed people, he wrote, are the least subject to passion, intrigue, and a corrupt administration. Newspapers, the source of information, should therefore be encouraged by the authorities, just as schools were. Like schools, he said, they should be considered as the auxiliaries of government and placed upon a respectable footing. They should be the heralds of truth, the protectors of peace and of good order. This was the prevailing view, and government deliberately helped to finance newspapers through printing contracts and special postage rates. All editors exchanged papers in those days because it was their main source of news in other communities, and these traveled post-free. In the publisher's home territory, all local papers went free through the post. America got the strongest, the most widely dispersed, and the most decentralized press in the world because for most of the 19th century, government subsidized it by these means. Thomas Jefferson himself, the third president of the United States, and the key man, in my view, in the growth of its democracy, laid down in the same year as the United States Constitution was drawn up, were it left to me to decide whether we should have a government without newspapers or newspapers without a government, I should not hesitate a moment to prefer newspapers. Amazing words. Yet it was the same Thomas Jefferson who, 20 years later, in 1807, 20 years later and wiser, the man who wrote, the man who never looks into a newspaper is better informed than he who reads them, insomuch as he who knows nothing is nearer to the truth than he whose mind is filled with falsehoods and errors. Here, neatly encapsulated in Jefferson's conflicting judgments is the contrast between the ideal and the reality of the media. In the Garden of Eden, where truth and freedom grow, the media, not as we want it to exist, but as it actually does exist, is the serpent which, introducing mankind to the tree of knowledge, bids us eat of the fruit which is evil as well as good. Like Adam and Eve, we can't do without the media apple. We feel we must eat it, whatever the consequences. Electronic printing and global satellite communications have transformed it since Jefferson's day, but the dilemma remains. We need the media to make democracy work at all, but we rightly fear the damage and corruption its frailties inflict on our society. How do we maximize the good and minimize the evil? The state can't do it. Of course, the media is, same, is subject to the same laws as everyone else, to the monopoly laws, the laws of libel, for instance. But we can't impose a special legal regimen on it to compel it to be good. As Milton argued 350 years ago, such laws would be wrong in themselves and they wouldn't work anyway. You can impose censorship for a limited purpose and for a limited time, in war, for example. But in a peacetime society, it damages more than it protects, and it always breaks down in the end. The only sure way in which we can have a moral media serving moral purposes is by having people work for it who subscribe to moral codes of conduct. How can this come about? I offer no perfect solution tonight. Indeed, there is none. 
Instead, I have some hints and guidelines based on over 40 years spent in the media all over the world, newspapers, magazines, TV, radio, in lecturing, pamphleteering, and publishing. And the first necessity is acceptance by those who work in the media of the power they dispose of. A man or woman sitting in a newspaper cubbyhole behind a console or in a broadcasting studio in front of a mic or a camera may not be conscious of the exercise of power. He may never even set eyes on readers and listeners and viewers. But the power is there, often enormous and fearsome power wielded through print and airways. Will it go the duties which the exercise of power impose? People who work in the media are often insufficiently aware of the obligations of their position, much less so than politicians, for instance. They even see themselves as part of the entertainment industry, operating in the frivolous margins of life. But that is false. More so than politics, the media stands right at the center of human activities. There are many aspects of life with which politics does not and should not concern itself. We live not in totalitarian societies, but in democracies where government is rightly limited. But there are very few sides of life with which the media does not deal. It is omnivorous, ubiquitous, uncircumscribed, and comprehensive. There is no nook or cranny in the world, scarcely a hidden area of the human spirit which it doesn't seek to penetrate. And most of, it, most of us want it that way because our own curiosity is infinite. But this means that the journalist, and I'm using this term as a generic term for all who hold responsible positions in the media, the journalist, even more than the politician, and perhaps even more than the clergyman, come to think of it, needs to be a moral person and see with moral as well as professional eyes. Now, the journalist, I need hardly say, is not regarded in this light. It is in many ways a disreputable profession or trade, more highly regarded perhaps here in America than in Britain, and more highly in Britain than in most of the continent of Europe, but nowhere held in particular esteem. Words we associate with it are scribbler, hack, penny a liner, sensationalist, puff, blurb, boost, ballyhoo, jargon, cant, slang, rag, tabloid, foot in the door, grub street, gutter press, and so on. In fact, journalists vary in moral probity, more perhaps than almost any other calling, from the high-minded and idealistic to the ineradicably grubby. But it is important to identify the characteristic weaknesses which lie behind the general condemnation if we are to improve or eliminate them. There seem to me to be seven, what I call the seven deadly sins of the media. The first, and in some ways the most important, is distortion. I don't say lying, because the outright publication of material known to be false is rare in journalism, certainly in, the, uh, in our world, in Britain, America, and so on. Uh, though there is in France today, actually, a so-called newspaper which specializes in printing invented stories about the British royal family. One would have thought it would have been put out of business recently. There are so many true stories about the British royal family. That's what it exists for. 
But distortion, deliberate or inadvertent, is much commoner, and it can take many forms. The only safeguard, as that resourceful journalist Dr. Samuel Johnson pointed out, is eternal vigilance, a positive desire to convey the exact truth. Boswell records him saying, Accustom your children constantly to this. If a thing happen at one window, and they, when relating it, say it happened at another, do not let it pass, but instantly check them. You do not know where deviation from truth will end. Mrs. Thrale thought this too harsh, saying, Little variations in narrative must happen a thousand times a day if one is not perpetually watching. To which the doctor replied, Well, madam, and you ought to be perpetually watching. It is more from carelessness about truth than from intentional lying that there is so much falsehood in the world. That is well observed, and Johnson's words ought to be posted in every newsroom and TV studio. Distortion can occur by tendentious selection, by unscrupulous editing, particularly of tapes in TV documentaries, what is called, I believe, bending, by deliberate suppression of nuances and qualifications, by exaggeration and hyperbole, by misplaced enthusiasm, unjustified criticism, not least by misuse of evidence, almost the commonest form of journalistic misrepresentation. I like to apply to journalism, as indeed to the writing of history, Karl Popper's law of proof. Writing of scientific hypothesis, he argued that the true scientist looks not just for evidence which proves it, but with the same eagerness for evidence which disproves it. How many journalists apply this test to themselves? Karl Popper's law requires a kind of heroism in the pursuit of truth. But like most advice, which is hard to follow, it is the best. The second deadly sin I call worshipping false images. It applies particularly to TV journalism, where the image captured on tape is allowed to dictate the shape and sense of the news story, or indeed, whether the news story gets into the program at all. This particular form of falsity is dictated by the axiom that the viewer is easily bored and must be held by vivid and preferably violent images. The words, the justification for the image, are a secondary consideration. Thus the tail wags the dog. We have here the commonest form of distortion on TV, and one which is cumulatively of huge importance, for it means that the image-less story, whatever its intrinsic importance, is treated as almost a non-event. Newspapers, too, worship false images, when they play down stories which cannot be well illustrated by photos, but also when they create stereotyped images, the clichés of the news desk. There's an almost irresistible urge, especially among tabloids, to create an international soap opera of goodies and baddies with the Castros and the Gaddafis, the Saddam Husseins and the Pol Pots making up the villains and constituting a stock of characters, a stock cast, who behave predictably and in type. The accretion of these images, which develop lives of their own, acts as a kind of opaque screen between the public and reality. The news media must be a sheet of plain glass through which we see the truth 
clearly. The third deadly sin is the theft of privacy. Intrusion into privacy is the most pernicious media sin of our time, and it seems to be growing. Every mortal man and woman has an inalienable right to some degree of privacy. However privileged, like royalty, however successful, like entertainment superstars, however powerful, like heads of government, or rich or celebrated, all require some privacy for mental and physical health. Even animals need it. Any ornithologist will tell you that some birds, if aware they are constantly watched, will pine and die. Human beings also have fragile psyches, which intrusion may maim. Even holders of public office require residual privacy to function effectively. So phone tapping, staking out, impersonation, telescopic lenses, all can be instruments of theft as surely as a burglar's bag of tools. Defending toleration in religion, Queen Elizabeth I said, I seek not to carve windows into men's souls. How right she was. The private lives, even of the famous, are not open to inspection by the public as of right. The editor or TV producer, before overstepping the clear line which divides public from private life, must always ask the question, is this disclosure, this intrusion, clearly in the public interest? Not, note well, interesting to the public, but in the public interest, a very different matter. And the key word is clearly, not marginally or ambiguously or arguably or possibly. The onus of proof lies with the intruder, carving windows into the lives of men and women, especially the humble and defenseless who are brought into the media spotlight by the sheer accident of events, is a form of assault or vandalism and a barbarous misuse of media power. Related to this is the fourth deadly sin, murder of character. The media has always been used for this unconscionable purpose. One of the most powerful of British press lords, Lord Beaverbrook, was notorious for his hate list of public personalities and also of his non-person list, those who were never to be mentioned in his newspapers under any circumstances. His journalists waged his vendettas with servile ardour. As Arthur Christensen, editor of his paper, The Daily Express, put it, the policies were Lord Beaverbrook's, the presentation mine. He was the mere executioner of a callous judge. Proprietorial vendettas are less common nowadays, fortunately, though they still occur. What is more prevalent and far more dangerous is the tendency of the media to assassinate the characters of public men and women from a generalized suspicion of authority. In America, for instance, the quest for public scandal in the aftermath of Watergate and the appointment of special prosecutors to investigate government has become a kind of disease which is debilitating the republic and inhibiting good people from serving it. In an important recent book, Susan Garment calls this the culture of mistrust, and she shows how law enforcers and journalists cooperate in creating what she calls a self-reinforcing scandal machine. 
She writes, prosecutors use journalists to publicize criminal cases, while journalists, through their news stories, put pressure on prosecutors for still more action. The media is a loaded gun when directed with hostile intent against an individual. Those who pull the trigger must always search their conscience to ensure that they have the right target. Otherwise, it is murder by media. The fifth deadly sin is the exploitation of sex to raise ratings and circulation. Newspapers have employed salacity since the 18th century, but it has never before been so systematically, unscrupulously, and shamefully flaunted as a selling point, upmarket as well as downmarket. It is significant that the recent Gadarene rush in the British press to exploit the marriage difficulties of the royal family was led by the supposedly serious broadsheet, the Sunday Times. In the United States, explicit sex is most frequently shown on the upmarket public service broadcasting network, and in Britain on the two, two so-called minority choice channels, BBC Two and Channel Four, both upmarket. And the same goes for other European countries. At the other side of the spectrum, popular tabloids devote an extraordinary amount of space, a third or more, to material which could be classified as soft pornography. Editors and TV producers may think long and hard about whether exploitation of sex will invite sanctions from such regulations as do exist, but I doubt if one in 20 ever considers the possible corrupting effect on viewers and readers. In this area, they have developed a thick-skinned moral neutrality. And that brings me to the sixth deadly sin, the soiling, one might almost say the poisoning, of the minds of children by what they see and hear and read. It is in practice impossible nowadays for parents, however conscientious, to censor the reading and viewing habits of children, except by excluding newspapers and TV from the family home. And that's a drastic step which deprives children of information they need. Regulatory measures, such as broadcasting unsuitable material only after 9 p.m., what used to be known in Britain as the toddler's truce, are derisory. They don't work. The only safeguard is the moral sense of those who take the decisions on what to print and broadcast. But this is usually lacking. Few media executives now recall that the Judeo-Christian ethic condemns almost without reservation those who corrupt the young. Jesus of Nazareth's most blood-curdling threats are directed against them. There is in the media a general unawareness, a moral blindness that, to a huge extent, it dictates the values and sensitivities of the future generation. But these things are rarely, if ever, considered at scheduling or editorial conferences. Hence to the seventh and last deadly sin, the abuse of the enormous power the media possesses. Ever since Macaulay termed the phrase the fourth estate, there's been awareness of the political power the media disposes of, what might be called the Citizen Kane syndrome. William Randolph Hearst tried to start a war. Northcliffe tried to overthrow the Lloyd George government. And I, I myself well remember the occasion, 40 years later, when his nephew, Cecil King, attempted to destroy Prime Minister Harold Wilson. 
The Watergate scandal was exploited by the Washington Post and the New York Times and other media giants to reverse the verdict of the electors and destroy a president. I sometimes get the impression that in the United States, those who control the editorial policies of the media feel that they are the final repository of the nation's honor, rather as army generals feel this in some Latin American countries, and that if a regularly elected government strays off the rails, they have the ultimate right to get rid of it by a media putsch. All these are abuses of power. Less obvious, but more insidious, is the abuse of media power to alter public attitudes and behavior. Media bosses are not always conscious of the degree of power they exercise and of its corrupting nature. For Lord Acton's dictum, Lord Acton's dictum that all power tends to corrupt applies at least as much to the media as to politics. Long exercise of great power produces even uh, to, in those who are immune to financial temptations, a general coarsening of the moral sensibilities, a certain careless, reckless approach to momentous decisions, which is a source of much evil. In a sense, this final deadly sin, abuse of power, subsumes all the others. Now, you may say, it is easy to specify and list these failings of the media, but how are they to be corrected? Can they indeed be corrected by any scheme of reform? And can a mere correction of error enable the media to make its proper contribution to mass culture in an era of growing global interdependence? The answer to this last question is no. Just to list the don'ts is not enough and something more positive is required. What I would like to see is for all those who hold the levers of power in the media publishers, TV bosses, editors, producers, writers, executives alike, to consider and recognize the vast extent of the influence they hold in the world over the day-to-day -day behavior of countless millions of people, as well as the actions of government, and in consequence accept the awesome responsibilities which go with it. The moment they begin to do so, the instant they perceive the magnitude of their ability to mold the future world, they must see that their duties cannot be exercised in a moral vacuum. A newspaper or a TV station is something more than an objective fact-recording organization uh, which doesn't make moral choices. And that is a point forcibly argued in Tom Stoppard's remarkable play about the media night and day. Those who work in the media are moral human beings first and professionals second. Indeed, if they're not moral human beings, they can't be good professionals either. And that means they must have positive moral objectives as well as negative prohibitions. Moral media, making a creative contribution to our culture, cannot be legislated into existence or bullied into existence for that matter. The most that someone like myself can do is to point the way. Having described the negative side of the media, its grievous habitual sins, let me now look at the positive qualities those who constitute it should possess. So here briefly are my Ten Commandments, my rules of moral conduct, which apply with particular force to editors and TV producers, but are addressed to all those who exercise media power and influence. 
The first imperative is an overriding desire to discover and tell the truth. And this is much more than a purely negative command not to lie or distort or bend. Because the truth is often difficult to discern. It's hidden or evasive, it's slippery, it's dangerous, it's complex. Even in the end, it's sometimes undiscoverable. What is required is huge energy in search of the truth, objectivity in recognizing it, scrupulosity in telling it, and a willingness to make clear to readers and viewers that it isn't always simple. Energetic and positive truth-telling must be balanced by a sense of responsibility. The second commandment is that journalists must always think through the consequences of what they tell. When a riot breaks out in one town, will certain forms of coverage make it likely riots will occur in other towns? What will legitimately inform and what will needlessly inflame? What will warn and what will corrupt? Those in charge of the media must always be totting up these moral balances. And while they may not get the answer right every time, the process of evaluating consequences must be both informed and instinctual. That leads directly to the third commandment. Truth-telling is not enough. Indeed, it can be positively dangerous without an informed judgment. We all have opinions, too many of them perhaps, so I stress informed. Journalists should be educated. More important, they should be self-educated too, a lifetime process. They should be reading men and women, taking advantage of the unrivaled opportunities which work in the media brings to broaden and deepen their knowledge of the world and its peoples. Those who own the media must do all in their power to encourage journalists to study and think and sharpen their judgments and to see and analyze events not merely in their immediate impact, but in their long-term implications, to see them even sub specie eternitatis. An educated media is essential because its primary function is to educate through information. This is the moral imperative, its principal contribution to the improvement in our culture and society. So the fourth commandment is that journalists should possess the urge to educate the missionary spirit. They shouldn't be content to tell the public what it wants to know, or what they think it wants to know, but what it ought to know and needs to know. The great American editor, Horace Greeley, in creating the New York Tribune in 1841, insisted that his paper would not merely record congressional, domestic and foreign news, but also, I quote, whatever shall appear calculated to promote morality, maintain social order, extend the blessings of education, or in any way serve the great cause of human progress to ultimate virtue, liberty, and happiness. That is an ambitious aim, and I wonder how many editors would have the self-confidence and hardihood to endorse it today, but they should. The fifth commandment is in some ways the most difficult one of all to follow, and the most important. Those running the media must distinguish between public opinion in its grand historic sense, which creates and molds a constitutional democracy, and the transitory, volatile phenomenon of popular opinion. James Madison, the primary author of the American Constitution, 
argued that in a republic it must be the reasons, not the passions of the republic, which sit in judgment. That is why he thought the revision of the constitution should be possible, but should not be easy. Editors and TV producers, in their quest of readers and ratings, find themselves the captive of mass emotions which are no more than moods, rather than genuine, necessary public needs. Northcliffe put up in his office the mystic slogan, It is ten, meaning the mental age of Daily Mail readers. H.L. <laughs> Mencken laid down, no newspaper ever lost circulation by underestimating the intelligence of its readers. But these are the slippery roads to media delinquency. A moral media conducts a reasoned dialogue with its public and avoids an emotional one like the plague. At times, too, the media must show the willingness to lead, and that is the sixth commandment. Power entails responsibility. Responsibility means leadership. It is inescapable. A TV network must be prepared to take a moral stand and stick to it in the face of pressures and criticism. A newspaper must not only give its readers news they do not wish to hear, but urge them to do things they find unpalatable. The risk of losing readers and viewers must be taken, and can, I believe, be taken with confidence. It is hard to recall any great newspaper which has been permanently damaged by taking an unpopular but principled decision. Leadership which is informed, reasoned and consistent is always respected and it is usually followed. But to exercise leadership requires courage and to show courage is the seventh commandment. The older I get, the more I see of public life and events, the more convinced I become that courage is the greatest of virtues and it's the one most lacking in the media. It is required at all levels from the humblest reporter who must always evaluate his orders morally to the richest tycoon risking his fortune to create new media outlets or make existing ones better and more responsible. My old colleague Nicholas Tomlin who was killed on journalistic duty on the Golan Heights in Syria was once asked what quality a journalist needed. He replied, rat-like cunning. <laughs> he, he might have added, lion-like courage, which he himself showed and which all journalists of necessity sometimes must show. The Eighth Commandment, indeed, is also a form of courage, and that is the willingness to admit error. All media organizations inevitably make appalling mistakes of fact and judgment and are egregiously reluctant to correct them, except under the fiercest legal pressures. But where great power is exercised, accuracy is paramount, and judgment and taste must be refined and sensitive to criticism. A willingness to apologize is the mark of a civilized person, and a contribution to the culture which is always seeking to purge its grossness and imperfection. The handsome and unforced admission of error is the best of all proofs that a newspaper or a TV network has a corporate sense of honor. And possessing such a sense is another way of saying that it has a conscience. But admitting error is not enough. My ninth commandment enjoins something more positive, a general fair-mindedness. 
if ever there was a moral quality, it is the, the ability to be habitually fair, because it involves so many others. The imagination to see other points of view, tolerance of them, temperance and restraint in expressing your own, generosity, and above all, a rooted sense of justice. Fair-minded newspapers stick out a mile because they are so rare. All TV networks make a display of their balanced approach, and hardly any display fairness when they wish to make a point. Yet fairness is one of the deepest human yearnings. It's almost the first moral point a small child recognizes, and lack of it is the commonest complaint the public flings at the media. And conversely, nothing is more likely to build confidence in the media than the public's awareness that it prizes fair-mindedness. Our last commandment is the most positive of all. Respect, value, treasure, and honor words. The media, even the image media, is essentially about words. For words are inseparable from truth, the only way in which it can be conveyed. In the beginning was the word. So St. John's Gospel, which I commended to you earlier, opens. The media has to use words in haste, sometimes in excitement. That is its nature. But it must also and always use them with care, with respect for their precise meaning and nuance, and with reverence for their power. Words can kill in countless different ways. They can destroy characters as well as possessions. But words can also enlighten, comfort, uplift, and inspire. They are the basic coinage of all culture, the essential units on which a civilization rests. Those who work in the media should always have a good dictionary at hand not merely to be sure of the significance of their verbal tools, but to acquire new ones. They should amass words in the banks of their minds for future use and spend them with judicious generosity and scrupulous regard for their value. But they should also rejoice in their richness and power, a richness which is one form of wealth available to all humanity and a power to make that humanity better, happier, and wiser. Respect for words and love of words are two sides of the same coin. And that coin is the currency which will enable the media to make a decisive contribution to world culture in the coming century. But it must be a moral media conducted by people with a strong sense of their moral obligations to society. Is that too much to ask? No, it is not, and we should not hesitate to ask it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's Bradley Lecture. I'm Wilson, and I surely hope you enjoyed it. Tune in to the AI Podcast channel for more, and be sure to review us and subscribe on your podcast player of choice. Until next time, we'll see you then.